Well, let's get our Bibles now, church. Let's go to the book of Jonah, second half of your Old Testament. So we continue our series in the Minor Prophets. Jonah chapter 2 is where we're going to be landing today. A 17-year-old girl decided to go uh, swimming with some friends in the beautiful waters of the Chesapeake Bay. But before diving in, she failed to check the depth of the water. The impact caused her spinal cord to be severed, which rendered her instantly paralyzed from the shoulders down. The doctors did all they knew to do, but the news was grim. She would never walk again, and she would be constrained to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. For a 17-year-old girl with her whole life in front of her, in that moment, imagine all her hopes and dreams just completely crashing down. Imagine the questions that could possibly run through your mind if you endured something like that. Lord, why? Why me? Why why would I not be able to be healed? She's thinking, am I ever going to have a family of my own? Am I ever going to be able to do anything with my life? Lord, are you even real? So depressed and angry, she even begged her friends to help her commit suicide. But God intervened. In the midst of her darkest moment, God brought the light of the gospel to this young lady, gloriously saved her, And now, since then, 50 years later, she has been a voice for the disabled. You've probably heard Johnny Erickson Tata, her name in the Christian world. Not only a voice for the disabled, but she is a voice of encouragement and applying the gospel to suffering and God being near us in the darkest times. There was a movie made about her life. She's written 35 books translated into 20 different languages. Recently, a reporter asked Johnny, how can you believe in and follow a God that would allow you to suffer like you do? This is what she said. What we believe in the light, we can be so quick to doubt in the darkness. And I've seen too much of the light to not choose the Lord. Perhaps the gift of pain and quadriplegia is that it forces me to recognize my desperate, desperate need for God, and that is a good thing. We know in our lives, whether we suffer to that extent or not, we all know what it is to go through dark times in our lives. We know what it is for God to meet us in those times. But we can also know in our weakest moments, there's also a temptation to allow our trials to define us, to allow our trials to to stunt our growth, that somehow our faith can't grow beyond that moment. That was much of Israel's history in the Old Testament, being defined by their suffering. Because their suffering and their persecution and exile and slavery was just this endless cycle that they were either being persecuted because they were obeying God or they were being corrected and judged because they were not 
obeying God. And with Jonah in, in his time, there was one group of foreign enemies that were just the face of this persecution and heartache for Israel, and that was the Assyrians, some of the most cruel, murderous, ruthless people on the planet. Even, even the minor prophets that we've been studying and going through uh, this year are categorized in relation to the suffering that Israel endured. Just throw a graph up here to, to show us. You, you may have seen something similar through the series. So you've got the pre-Assyrians. So before the Assyrians rose to power, you've got Obadiah, Joel, and Jonah, the one we're studying now. And then as the Assyrians came to full power and really wreaked havoc, you've got Amos and Hosea and Micah. And then the Assyrians begin to lose their power, but the Babylonians start taking their place as the bully on the block. That's where we have Nahum and Zephaniah and Habakkuk. And then we have the post-exile. After Israel comes out of exile and slavery, you have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So just to see how they're categorized, even in connection with suffering, God's people in large part were defined by that. This also helps us today because we're able to see where the book of Jonah falls in a time where the Assyrians were coming to power, but not fully yet. But Jonah had already heard from the prophets that came before him the repeated warning Unless Israel repented and followed God, God would send their enemies, namely the Assyrians, to enslave them. Jonah knew that was the divine threat if Israel didn't repent. So now with that, imagine when God came to Jonah and said, Hey, Jonah, guess who I'm going to send you to to warn them so they can repent? I'm going to send you to the city of Nineveh, one of the largest cities of the Assyrian Empire. And we learned last week how instead of obeying God, Jonah jumps on a ship, tries to go as far as he can in the opposite direction, away from Nineveh, and the Bible says away from the presence of the Lord. He tried to, but he didn't succeed. So God, in his mercy, sent a storm the sailors are terrified. They don't know what to do. They ask Jonah, what should they do? Jonah says, this is all my fault. My God, Yahweh, has sent this storm. The only answer is to throw me into the sea. Of course, he could have repented, but he didn't. He said, you got to throw me overboard. And so against their better judgment, that's what the sailors did. And now we pick up in our text today with Jonah sinking into the deep. Sure death. Surely he's going to drown. Let's back up to chapter 1, verse 17. We're going to read through chapter 2, verse 10, and then we'll pray. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord. Out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. 
The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the timeliness of your word and how you, Holy Spirit, apply it to us. So this morning, that's what we ask for. Give us illumination. Open our eyes to see the truth and help it be applied to our hearts that we would grow to know you more and to have hope in the midst of our own darkness because you're good. In Jesus' name, amen. We know that the Bible is full of assurances of hope, especially when we are in difficult times. We're promised that we serve a God that even in the worst of times, he will take the worst things that we're going through and turn them around for good. That's because God is faithful. Jesus promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And this is especially important to remember when we are going through trials, when we're going through our own darkness, that when we don't even know what is going on, we don't know where to go, where to turn, God does, and he is still in control. In fact, I'd like for you to hold on to this central truth this morning from our text, and that is that in our darkest times, God is not only with us, But God is using the darkness to work in us his good will. We have that assurance this morning. Now, the many things we could glean from this part of the book of Jonah, I would like for us just to consider two ways we can see how God uses our darkness for good. First way is this. God will use our darkness to remove distractions and reveal himself to us. Notice how verse 17 says that the Lord appointed this fish. That's a very specific word. That that throws out any notion that we would have that this is some, some happy accident, some coincidence, that here's this drowning man and, oh, here's this really big hungry fish. No, God appointed this to happen exactly the way it did. Now, imagine for a moment what it seems the text doesn't spend a lot of time on. You know, when you're reading a narrative, the next sentence could be a day later, but for us, it's, it's a second. We don't know how long Jonah was treading water. If he could swim, it could have been for hours. We don't know how, how close he came to dying or how deep he, he sank in the water. So there was a very real moment where Jonah was drowning. In, in Sunday school, we get the picture, you know, Jonah, he's smiling and being thrown off the boat. Hey, and he splashes in the water and here's the fish smiling. Hey, swallows him. Maybe there were hours. We do know this, Jonah 
thought he was going to die. And that's kind of what he wanted instead of preaching mercy to the lost. But God intervened. Now, in the moment when a man is drowning, what is his immediate need? To be rescued from drowning, right? Now, that was his immediate need, but that was not his greatest need. Jonah's greatest need was a changed heart. If God was only uh, trying to transport Jonah from, from the water to the shore, God could have done that a hundred different creative ways. God could have sent a, a group of sea turtles. God could have sent a school of dolphins like you would see at SeaWorld, and Jonah could just ski in, waving to the shore, all nice and pretty. But he didn't because God wasn't just about transporting Jonah. God was about transforming him. And so the way God rescued Jonah looks like judgment. In fact, God brought that darkness not only to rescue Jonah, but to redeem him. And redeem the purpose that God already told Jonah he was going to go do. And that is for a whole city to be warned and an opportunity to repent. Now, Jonah is in the belly of the fish, the Bible says, three days and three nights. Maybe you've had conversations with unbelieving neighbors or family where the people who don't believe the Bible is true, this is usually one of the stories they go to. Wait, wait a minute. What about Jonah and the fish? There's no way a guy can survive in a fish's belly for three days. Well, first of all, that's kind of a, a humorous question because let's just close our eyes, open the Bible and say, oh, that's impossible. That can't happen without God. So the God who made everything with a word, the God who can raise the dead back to life, what is impossible for him? Nothing. So just putting that question aside for a moment, let's try to imagine what Jonah's darkness could have been like inside that fish. Now, I made a big deal saying last week that the Bible doesn't say whale, it says fish. But just by comparison, let's use one, the, the biggest whale we know of, the blue whale. And just by comparison, let's just see what, how big a man is compared to a blue whale. They, they grow to about 100 feet long. That's bigger than three school buses end to end. Its heart is as big as a car. Its tongue is as big as an elephant, just its tongue. Its stomach can hold up to four tons of food at one time, which is, by the way, filled with air. And so plenty of room for a man. The average temperature inside that stomach would be about 108 degrees. If you ever go into a sauna, it's pretty close. Now add to that sauna the overwhelming stench of rotten eggs because of the half-digested food going on. And don't forget, the stomach is full of acid breaking down food. So here's the picture of Jonah. Unless God intervenes, Jonah has no hope. He's going to die a slow, painful, stinking death. That's where Jonah is for three days and three nights. If there was a good time to panic... This is it. This would be appropriate. Looking at his circumstances, 
Jonah had no hope. But that's exactly what God intended. That Jonah would see that Jonah is not in control. Jonah would see there is no hope apart from the Lord. And there really is no joy and peace apart from walking in the will of the Lord. And we all know what it's like to be in a trial where we're asking questions. Maybe you're in one right now where you're, you've been praying, Lord, where are you? Lord, how long? How long am I going to have to endure this? What am I doing wrong? What lesson do I need to learn so that I can get relief? By the way, it's not wrong to pray for relief. But we can just be assured God is always up to something more than just relieving pain. He's always after our hearts. And that's always good for us. Lord, how long is my child going to be sick? How long do I have to endure this anxiety and fear? How long, oh Lord, is my marriage going to be in shambles? How long are my finances going to be a mess? How long that, but before that hurt from my past will finally let up and not hinder me now? How long, oh Lord? We want rescue, but God is after our redemption. Jonah, no doubt, wanted to be somewhere else other than the belly of that fish. But God was intent on changing Jonah's heart. I've shared this with a couple of people. But during my sabbatical, so at my office at home is, is in our basement. And so I'm surrounded with my books, but I'm also surrounded with boxes and storage and clutter. And so for about the first month of my three-month sabbatical, there was just intense heart work going on reading scripture, reading books that were helpful, praying, just spending extended time all day long with the Lord. And, and God met me, met me over and over and over. And then later in the afternoon, I started feeling this, this kind of urge to start cleaning stuff up. So I'm, I'm taking down boxes off the shelves that surround my office. And I'm like, what? Oh, I've been looking for that. Or what? We kept this for this many years? You know, we've lived in that house now for 13 years. And there's a box I haven't even opened yet. What's going on? And so there's just, I just began to clean up. I began to declutter. I spent weeks in the afternoons just getting rid of stuff. One day Chloe came to me. She said, Dad, why are you cleaning up everything? And I just kind of told her, I said, you know, I'm not sure. But I think this is a reflection of what God's doing in my heart. I think there's some decluttering that God is doing. He's, he's getting rid of distractions. He's removing stuff that I kind of added on that don't belong to me or stuff that I don't need that I've been holding on to. I think what's going on around me is what God's been doing in me. And I pray for me and I pray for you that God continues to do that kind of good work in us. You see, sometimes our circumstances can begin to reflect what's going on inside of us. But we need to be careful to recognize that sometimes the, the very things that we're praying to be delivered from can be the very thing God sent to be deliverance for us. You know, there's times we're praying, God, take away this pain, take away this difficulty. God could be saying, I sent that difficulty to draw you to me. And that's what it's doing. Lord, this darkness, I can't take it anymore. And God could be saying, 
I'm the one that turned off the lights so that you would be blinded to all the distractions and the things that your heart's been longing for other than me. And it's working. It's for your good. God often sends the very thing that we're praying for deliverance from as our deliverance. In the darkness, we can't see clearly, but God is teaching us. We can't see what's going on. He can. We don't know what's happening. He knows. He's removing distractions, and he's revealing himself to us. And secondly, God will use our darkness to refocus our faith and rekindle our affections for him. Now, here in the majority of chapter 2, this is Jonah's prayer. And it's actually a prayer and, and a psalm and a sermon all at once. We're going to walk through it briefly. Verses 1 and 2. Then, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So notice Jonah starts with declaring God's faithfulness. He says literally, from my grave you rescued me and heard my prayer. Now remember, he's still in the fish. He's not talking about something in the future. He's talking about how God already rescued him from drowning. Jonah's beginning to see that fish is not a curse but a blessing. Even though he doesn't want to be in that fish, Jonah acknowledges God is sovereign. Look at verse 3. For you cast me into the deep. Into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. I remember Jonah's praying in the fish. He's praying on the third day that he's in the fish. So his circumstances haven't changed. They're just as bad as the other two days. But Jonah's heart appears to be changing. His affections appear to be renewed in God. And it's here Jonah cries out to the Lord, my God. The God he's been running from, it looks like he's now running to. You are my God. Now look at verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. The trial, the circumstance, the discomfort you're going through right now, God will use it. If it's something that is a result of our sin and disobedience, God will use it to give us opportunity to repent, to draw us back to him. The kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. He's using that for our sanctification to grow us in maturity, to strengthen our faith, to remind us of his steadfast covenant-keeping love. And the good news for Christians, of, of many of the pieces of good news we have, is we don't have to wait for the end of the trial to find joy, to find gratitude. In the middle of the circumstance when it hasn't changed, we can have a different perspective knowing, being reminded that God is at work. 
very situation you want to be rescued from, God is using to draw you to himself. Verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah submits to the Lord. He's got, his sacrifice is going to be his obedience. He says, I will go. In the beginning, he ran from God because he despised God's mercy. But now, in the midst of his most desperate time, God's mercy takes on a whole new meaning for him. And he's grateful for it. Isn't that how God uses trials in our lives? Maybe not instantly, but eventually we begin to see where our hearts are, are prone to complain, prone to be discontent. When we're complaining about what we don't have, God lovingly reminds us what we do have, reminding us just how blessed we are. You see, I think part of the reason is not only do we live in a fallen world and, and we dwell with, or, or we wrestle with indwelling sin, but I think our perspective gets skewed sometimes. When something bad happens in our life, it's almost like a shock and a surprise. And when something good happens in our life, it can be, eh, yeah, I kind of expected that, or I did that. Shouldn't it be the opposite in a fallen world? When something bad happens, we should say, that's kind of what happens in a fallen world. And when something good happens, we should be, oh, wow, God, you're amazing, and be grateful. Isn't it funny how the bad memories are much more vivid than the good ones. Sometimes you got to think hard for good memories, but the bad ones just pop right up. I think it's because we hold to them. But it could also be if you've walked through a hard time and you've seen God's goodness, you don't have to be convinced. You know it's through our hardest times that God does some of his most memorable work in our hearts. God redeems those situations. So Jonah... He knows his sin got him there. He knows he deserves death. He knows that God is the one that rescued him from drowning. And even though he's still in the belly of the fish, it looks like Jonah's having a change of heart. I'm going to fulfill my vows. I'm going to obey you, Lord. And he concludes with that beautiful proclamation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah's confessing there's nothing he can do or has done that will save him, whether that be his walk with, with the Lord or whether that be saving him from this fish now. And it, and it means that Jonah's recognizing that he cannot keep back God's mercy from someone else. Salvation is God's work. What does the Lord do in verse 10? The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Jonah is a picture of disobedience, but God spoke to the fish to go get him. The fish obeyed. God speaks to the fish to spit him out. The fish obeyed. The prophet disobeys, but God gets a fish to obey. Now, it's appropriate. As Jonah's crying out, salvation belongs to the Lord. I think those are very appropriate ending words in his time inside the fish. Because Jonah's not only recognizing that he's done nothing to deserve rescue, he's done nothing to deserve to, for God to even let him live, much less continue to be a prophet and carry the good news of repentance. But the narrator, whoever this is, the narrator of this book, is giving us two clear indictments to show us this is not about Jonah's 
great example. One indictment is it took Jonah three days to pray. The beginning of the the chapter, then Jonah prayed after three days and three nights. Then he prayed. I don't know what caused that arrogance, pride, I don't know. But it three days and nights inside the fish before Jonah decides to cry out to the Lord. And the second indictment is that Jonah never repents. Did you notice that? He, yes, he says, oh, I will complete my vow. I will obey. But there's never a point in this praise or prayer where Jonah says, Lord, I have sinned. Please forgive me. But what does God do anyway? He rescues him. He redeems Jonah and sends Jonah on the mission that he initially called him to, to go and preach mercy to other people that don't deserve it. You see the spotlight? It's not on Jonah. Oh, we just need a changed heart like him. No, it's on the mercy of God. Yes, we are called to repent of our sins and trust in Christ to be saved. No doubt about it. But even those who know Christ, those who are living for Christ, and you know you have repented, and you continue to repent of sin, as we all should, you know it was God who acted upon you to do that in the beginning. We weren't searching for God. He came looking for us. We didn't just naturally say, gee, I'm a bad person. I need to repent. That was the Holy Spirit revealing the truth of the gospel, the bad news we can't save ourselves, and the wonderful news that Jesus has come to do that very thing. We don't deserve that. But yet what does God do? He acts upon us. Why? Because he's merciful and because salvation belongs to the Lord. We can give him praise for that. Now, this declaration that Jonah makes is very real for him. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But it's also prophetic and would point forward to what would come next and who would come. That salvation is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself uses the story of Jonah to communicate this very truth. In fact, it was Jonah is the, is the only Old Testament prophet that Jesus compares himself to. So when the Pharisees come to Jesus and says, and they say, prove to us, give us a sign that you are really the Messiah. And Jesus answers this way in Matthew 12. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given, it, given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, knowing the story of Jonah, this was not Jesus simply making the comparison of three days in a fish and three days in the grave, but all the rest that the story would entail as well. The darkness that Jesus would endure, the the isolation, the separation from God the Father. That as Jesus hung on the cross, that he would actually be abandoned by the Father. Why? So that we would never be. Jesus enduring darkness. Jesus enduring the wrath of God and even death itself so that you and I could live in his light for eternity. This is encapsulating what Jesus would endure. Thankfully, 
we know that Jesus, on that third day, broke the grip of death, rose from the dead, giving us hope and life and light to live in him and with him forever, that Jesus rescues us from our sin and therefore redeems us from the curse, redeems us from the pit, redeems us from what we deserve by giving us the mercy we don't deserve. Only a powerful, loving God could use the grave to show us grace. Only God could take our darkness and make it as bright as the light by revealing himself, by removing the distractions, removing the false affections, removing our idols to show us himself and to cause our affections to be anchored in him again. If you're in darkness right now, whether that's something you've caused by your own actions or something that you have no idea why it's happening, you're just in it right now. You need to be encouraged. God has not left you. Jesus is closer now than he has ever been in the midst of your darkness. You've seen too much of the light to doubt him and lose your hope now. Jesus has not left you. I love the way Tim Keller puts it. He says, if Jesus Christ didn't abandon you in his darkness, the ultimate darkness, why would he abandon you now in yours? God wants to reveal his mercy to us this morning. If you're straying, he wants to bring you back. If you're wrestling with doubts in your faith, that doesn't scare God. He wants to strengthen your faith and remind you of his love and his grace for you. And through it all, he wants to anchor our hope in the remembrance of the promise that there is coming a day where this broken world will pass away. There's coming a day where there will be no more darkness, no more sin, no more pain, where Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. The Bible says there will be no darkness because Jesus is the light. We will get to stand in that great city, in his presence forever, because he is the light. There's coming that day, church. Put your hope there. I close with these words this morning. In my office, in the basement, on my desk, there's this little frame, and it's got just four lines written by the great hymn writer, William Cooper. It says this, Trials make the promise sweet. Trials give new life to prayer. Trials bring me to his feet. Lay me low and keep me there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. You are compassionate toward us in our trials, in our struggles. And even when we sin, you are quick to repent or quick to forgive as we repent. So Lord, this morning, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for those watching at home, wherever the darkness is surrounding them, wherever the trial feels overwhelming, 
that, Lord, they would see you in the darkness. As we pray for relief, Lord, let us have a greater prayer for redemption. Draw our hearts to you, that we would love you with a steadfast love, and that we would give you the glory and praise you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.